Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me on my special day. What, what do you think of my gigs? I, I mean, my body may not be at the beach, but my mind is at the beach. This is, this is my Hawaii Stephen LaBerge shirt when I, when I was um, doing my programs with Stephen and Kalani in the Big Island. He got, he got so decked out with these things, I just felt like I was in the dust. So I ran out and bought some of these things. I, I just love them. I love the colors. I think they're just awesome. So, so we have that one song, right? Can you play it? Yeah. So uh, um, one of the really fun things that's happening these days are people sending me, are, are sending me the most amazing things. And so um, a friend sent this lovely song. It's only about three minutes. And um, I just think it's pretty cool. So I thought we would start with, um, with this little tune. So if Andy can cue it up. Great, we're getting started. All right, this next song is not released yet, but I felt like singing it because I think we could all use the message right now. This is Good Morning. Yeah. Last night was shit, my phone was dark, the world's a mess, that's just the start. But I slept all right, I guess it's good morning. Phone call from mom, dad lost his job, text from my ex, she's moving on, but we're all alive, it must be good morning. Nightmares and mistakes, swim around in this bed that I made, I know the past doesn't change, but we're pushing past it today, so get up, make some coffee, make some love, take a shower, do whatever, just get up. Cause the sun ain't gonna stop If you're ready, if you're not Just, just get up Today is all we got Tomorrow might not come So, so get up So get up Good morning Look, throw on a shirt The same old jeans I swear my vans They're never clean But I'm feeling new Cause it's a good morning Look it might be the day where nothing's right Might be the day that changes my whole life You never know, they both start with good morning Oh, oh nightmares and mistakes I Swim around in this bed that I made I know the past doesn't change But we're pushing past it today So get up, make some coffee, make some love Take a shower, do whatever, just get up Cause the sun ain't gonna stop If you're ready, if you're not Just get up Today is all we got Tomorrow might not come So get up So get up Good morning So get up And wash all your fears away Cause we got a world to change You know a drop can start away It's never too late See the beauty in simple things All the hope that a sunrise brings You can see it in everything If you just get up hey, Take a shower, do whatever Just get up If you're ready, if you're not Just get up Today is all we got oh. So get up So get up Good morning 
Good morning. <laughs> Love that tune. That's awesome. That's my gift to you from this wonderful little artist. Lots of really nice uh, messages in that thing, right? You know, it's always morning, really. In uh, the brilliant teachings of Trungpa Rinpoche, Great Eastern Sun, it's always morning. It's always this kind of eternal youth. Um, and so lots of, I think, sweet messages in there. We don't know if tomorrow will come. Let's live in the present moment and celebrate it. I wanted to read another thing. This is just, again, this is so cool. Um, my new friend Pramanjali sent me this really beautiful thing from Jack Kerouac, which I had not come across. I'm going to read this to you because this is quite beautiful and actually a bit profound. And then I'll, I'll run just a tiny bit of commentary afterwards because this, this will be my little kind of riff. Uh, there was a request to do the crying practice, but I don't feel like crying today, man. It's my birthday. It's my party. Uh, I'm going to cry if I want to. I don't want to cry today. So I'd rather do laughing practice. Um, and we'll do crying practice, I promise. But it, it takes a little bit to unpack that properly. And uh, um, it's interesting that this request was, was um, put forth by my good friend, Joe Parent, who's a golf instructor. I just think of Joe and I start crying uh, because he reminds me of my handicap. <laughs> So this is, uh, this is from Jack Kerouac. This is awesome. I have lots of things to teach you now in case we ever meet. Concerning the message that was transmitted to me under a pine tree in North Carolina on a cold winter moonlit night. It's said that nothing ever happened. So don't worry. It's all like a dream. Everything is ecstasy inside. We just don't know it because of our thinking minds. But in a true blissful essence of mind is known that everything is all right forever and forever and forever. Close your eyes, let your hands and nerve endings drop. Stop breathing for three seconds. Listen to the silence inside the illusion of the world, and you will remember the lesson you forgot, which was taught in immense Milky Way soft cloud innumerable worlds long ago, and not even at all. It is all one vast awakened thing. I call it the golden eternity. It is perfect. We were never really born. We will never really die. It has nothing to do with the imaginary idea of a personal self, other selves, selves everywhere. Self is only an idea, a mortal idea. That which passes into everything is one thing. It's a dream already ended. There's nothing to be afraid of and nothing to be glad about. I know this from staring at mountains months on end. They never show any expression. They are like empty space. Do you think the emptiness of space will ever crumble away? Mountains will crumble, but the emptiness of space, which is the one universal essence of the mind, vast awakenhood, empty and awake, will never crumble away because it was never born. Whoa, not bad, Jack. I mean, that's just beautiful. That's, that's totally Mahamudra Dzogchen. Nandu Shaiva Tantra teaching. And it's really, I got this after I 
thought about what I wanted to talk just ever so briefly about. This is a complete paraphrase of what I wanted to riff on because this is my sort of semi-special day. Um, I remember very, very clearly quite a few years ago, 20 some years ago, when I started teaching a lot on the Bardos, the deaf and dying teachings, I was doing a program in Seattle from the Nalanda Bodhi community. And my teacher, Kempo Sultram Gyamso Rinpoche, happened to be in residence there at the time. And so I had the great good fortune to spend some time with him um, when I flew in. And, and before I left, I said, Rinpoche, you know, I'm about to pretend to teach on the Bardos this weekend. Do you have anything, any advice for me to give, to share to these people? And without just pausing even for a moment, he said, tell them death is an illusion. Death is an illusion. And what that therefore means, just like what Jack Kerouac was saying, um, that means that birth is also an illusion because you can't have one without the other. They co-emerge, they co-define each other. And so death only occurs in the realm of form, the self that Kerouac was talking about, the kind of the archetype of form, the archetype of thingness, which is just really a fundamentally funny way of looking at reality, a, a, an arrested form of development. And so the, the fundamental teaching here is that there is in fact a part of you that is not born, that does, is, uh, that does not die. And if we can somehow come to differentiate from these false levels of identification and transfer our identity to this deep, truer, formless dimension of our being, then neither birth nor death have meaning anymore. They're both illusion. And so I have one last incredible quotation. This one's from David Loy. I'm, I'm really a fan of this incredible thinker. I share this in the class that I'm doing on, on Tuesdays. In many ways, this is the seminal teaching of the whole Bardo agenda. So this is what David Loy has to say. If we can realize that there is no delineated ego self, which is alive now, the problem of life and death is solved. Such is the Buddhist goal, to experience that which cannot die because it was never born. I mean, that's amazing. That's just an astounding summary statement. And so, um, yeah, I'm not sure I want to say, you know, it's our usual 15, 20 minutes. I don't want to say a ton. I want to leave this in the arena of our, of our conversation, our Q&A. That's the essence of what we do here. Um, but yeah, if we could somehow just gain this realization in the, in the um, timeless time that we have. I mean, that's the other really beautiful thing here, you know. Um, fundamentally, there's no such thing as time either, right? There's no birth, there's no death, there's no time. Time only exists in the world of form. And, uh, and so in the brief timeless time that I have with you, we can um, chat about these other things. And oh, I guess there's one last thing again. Um, this is for Joe who's listening because I always have one last thing to say. <laughs> Thich Nhat Hanh once said, uh, very be beautifully, he said, you know, we should get rid of this ridiculous, silly notion of birthdays altogether. And we should replace them with continuation days. So that's the way I, I send out my salutations these days. I, I no longer send out happy birthdays. I send out happy continuation days. Um, and what it is that continues, maybe we can talk about that today. That, that's a, a, a quite a deep dive. What, what is in fact it, quote unquote, that does continue? It's not a net. 
that's for one thing. But anyway, a few offerings from Kerouac, from, from the musician, from um, David Loy and Thich Nhat Hanh, my, my brief gift to you all. So please, uh, I think Andy's gonna start with a couple of the mail-in questions because we wanna honor some of those. And then as usual, we'll just turn it open to the more um, informal kind of conversational thing, which is what I enjoy the best. So anyway, fire away, Andy. Thanks. Yeah, these are some of the questions that came in from last week and from prior to that. So here we go. Okay. Uh, can you talk about what the experience is like to meditate within a lucid dream? Yes. Um, it depends on, on the type of meditation. You know, meditation is now such a catch-all term. It's a little bit like sport. When, when people say sport, well, I mean, what are there, hundreds of sports? Same with meditation. Hundreds, hundreds of meditations. Usually, um, kind of the default meditation these days, of course, is mindfulness, um, especially with the mindfulness revolution. And so, Number one is that it depends on the meditation that you're doing. So this is kind of what constitutes uh, the progression of what I describe as, as kind of the nine stages of dream yoga practice um, is in fact increased subtleties of different types of meditations. That's what differentiates dream yoga from lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming definitely can have psychological and spiritual kind of overtones. But in contradistinction to dream yoga, dream yoga is all about meditation. It's all about working with mind in the medium of the dream. And so let's just say it's, it's mindfulness practice. Let's say you want to do mindfulness practice in your dream. Um, this is a little bit tricky practice to do at the outset. And there are several reasons for this. Because, and I recommend you try it and you'll see. Um, if we if we try to do like standard sitting meditation in our dream, it's a little bit difficult um, at first because one of the things that keeps the dream alive is engagement in the dream, and also um, literally eye movement. Literally, um, dream states. Most of our dreams take place in REM, rapid eye movement sleep. And it's actually one way, um, by the way, if you want to stop a dream, if you're in a lucid dream or whatever, it's rare to want to stop it. But if you want to stop a dream, hold your eyes really still in the dream. Um, because if you hold your dream eyes still, it holds your physical eyes still. In fact, this is how they proved lucid dreaming, by sending dream um, code messages, like a Morse code back and forth. The guy was moving his dream eyes, it moves the physical eyes. Those are some of the few muscles that are not paralyzed in REM sleep. And they were able to signal that the EE, the, um, the uh, uh, electrooculograms picked up the movement and they substantiated it. So if you sit in meditation or you want to end a dream, hold your eyes still. That tends to keep your physical eyes still. That tends to stop the REM that defines the dream. It wakes you up. That's one reason this practice is difficult. That in conjunction with the fact that you're stationary when you're doing sitting meditation. So I generally don't recommend people try that because it's, it's frustrating. Um, I usually recommend people start with a walking meditation in their dreams where they maintain a quality of mindfulness. Um, they're actually, you know, their dream body is engaged in, the, in a walking type meditation. The eyes are, are, are somewhat active. And the idea there is to just see what happens within that environment. And then outside of that, then all the other, excuse me, all the other practices come into play. 
so even things like just to give you one um, brief example, even things like classic dream yoga practices to take anything. Let's say you got, you're dreaming about a pen, right? One of the uh, classic instructions is you want to change the pen into a phone. doesn't matter. It can be anything. Whatever appears in your dream, you, ch you work to change that dream image in front of your mind's eye. That's actually a meditation. It's not just like a mental video game. It's actually a way to work with trans, literally transforming the contents of your dream. And, you know, people all, why are you want to do that? I mean, why is that a practice? Well, I mean, what are your dreams made of, right? Dreams are made of mind. And so if you can change your dream volitionally, you can fundamentally learn how to change your mind at the deepest possible levels. And so maybe I'll, I'll let it go for, you know, with that, because this is, this opens up an entire kind of arena of different types of strategies and practices. But um, I generally recommend people start with a little walking meditation. You can experiment with keeping your body and your eyes stationary, but most people, when they do that, it ends the dream. Um, so if you do sit down, you may want to just kind of do a brief little scan with whatever's in front of you, kind of keep things engaged a little bit because otherwise um, you're probably just going to pop out of the dream. So something like that. Does one need to be able to achieve lucidity in all levels of dream and sleep, including the sleep states that are non-dream? It seems like there's something missing there. For what purpose? Start it over again. So it, may, it may have been related to something you were pinging off of in the last oh, week okay. talk. Okay. So maybe read it again and I'll see if I can make the connection or not. Sure. Does one need to be able to achieve lucidity in all levels of dream and sleep, including the sleep states that are non-dream? Um, well, again, because it's kind of a dangling participle. So, um, well, if you want to become, you know, become fully uh, fluent, proficient in the nocturnal meditations, then yes. But um, otherwise, not necessarily. You know, I mean, if first of all, I wouldn't spend a ton of time on sleep yoga, um, deep dreamless sleep practice, that's a little bit more kind of graduate school. I mean, if, if some people have that kind of propensity and they can maintain lucidity in the non-dream non state, that's great. But that's generally not so easy. Um, lucid dreaming, of course, much more accessible, relatively so. And again, because I can't patch this into what was probably a prequel to the question, I'm not quite sure where to run with it. But fundamentally, here's the thing, you know, I mean, these nocturnal practices, as I call them, they're not mandatory, right? They're, in a certain sense, they're optional. Um, it, in so many ways, the daytime practices are the foundation practice. But it's like, I mean, life is so short. I mean, 25% of our lives in the dream state, half a million times we enter the dream, six years in our life. A third of your life is slept in sleep altogether. I mean, you can get a PhD in less than six years. Think about how much you can learn, practice, um, and develop if you, in fact, can attain lucidity. At the highest levels, you fundamentally, um, really, the Buddhas, there's no difference whatsoever between waking, sleeping, dreaming, dying. It's all uh, one taste. It all tastes like God. It's all this equanimous um, democratic nature of awareness itself. So at the very highest levels, yes, you are you actually not considered awake in the spiritual sense until you in fact can do any of your practices in any state. 
this is a nice litmus test for a lot of these so-called Western meditation masters that run around either overtly or covertly proclaiming their enlightenment. Well, you know, I mean, ask them how they can practice in their sleep, ask them how they can practice in their dream. So maybe I'll let that one run for now because I'm not sure what, what the prequel um, to that was, but that may be enough. <laughs> you said we can modify patterns and programs from our subconscious. If I'm remembering my dreams and can identify this, how could I change them? Yeah, okay. First of all, there's a difference between the subconscious and the unconscious. Not the same. Um, unconscious is deeper. So we're working more with the unconscious mind. Subconscious mind is more liminal dreaming, which is entirely valid. No, you know, criticism here whatsoever. But liminal dreaming works a little bit more between the transition from waking state to true unconscious states. You're more in this kind of liminal sub, subconscious arena. Um, and so uh, re read it, just read it one more time to me. I already had too many margaritas this morning. <laughs> You said, you said we can modify patterns and programs right. from our subconscious. If I'm remembering my dreams and can identify this, how can I change yeah. them? Yes, exactly. So that in many ways is the point of dream yoga, is, is working with modifying these um, construction patterns, habit, karma, at the level of this more foundational dimension of our being. In fact, that's another reason why it's advantageous to do it in the dream state. Um, as I've mentioned, I think repeatedly is when you're working with these practices, you're working in this rare hybridized state of consciousness where the conscious mind can in fact meet the unconscious mind directly. And so therefore backstage always runs on stage, um, conscious, the unconscious processes dictate so-called conscious life. And so therefore what you do down there has really very profound applications, implications, and repercussions up here. It's like I use the analogy of tectonic plates. You know, you're shifting the tectonic plates of your mind. And that's why these practices, Namkai Norbu Rinpoche goes so far as to say that the practices you accomplish in the dream state are up to nine times more efficacious, up to nine times more transformative than those exact same practices as they're done in the waking state. Why? because they're so much more foundational. You're, you're closer to reality. And so what you therefore do, and this again defines dream yoga, is you really work with changing your habits, changing your karma, your patterning at the level of the unconscious mind. And using you know, the tenets of neuroplasticity, nadi plasticity, that's my term for the inner yoga transformations. What you do with your mind, even in the dream state, changes your brain not rhetoric, it's reality. What you do in the dream state with your mind changes your brain and it can also change your body. And so this type of reconditioning, transformation of patterns and habits is, is one of the great reasons to do these practices. Um, and therefore you can really affect transformation and the literature is just replete with these kind of assertions and testimonials. Um, and then what we do in a kind of bi-directional way, right? what you do with these practices under the darkness uh, of um, the night, under the cover of darkness, doesn't just stay there. It basically works to come back and uh, transform your daytime experience. And, and to me, this has been an absolute game changer for me. It's why I'm so passionate about these practices is that they, they don't just stay tucked in. You know, they actually pop, you know, like, they act kind of like pop-ups. They, they start to illuminate. It's why I, I titled my first book, you know, Illuminating Your Life. 
through these practices. So um, you transform bad habits to good habits, bad karma to good karma. That's a, a vast array of the practices. And then fundamentally, you want to transcend habit or karma altogether, patterning altogether, conditioning altogether. That's what defines a Buddha. It's only a Buddha that's habit-free, only a Buddha that's um, conditioned-free, completely unpatterned, detoxed, and, and depending on what analogy you want to use. And so again, remember, what are you doing in the dream? You're, you're just working with your mind. I mean, what else are dreams made of? You're simply working with your mind. And so you can absolutely change patterns, um, connectivities, associations, and the like through these practices. That's a, a main reason we do them. So. Can you speak to joyful effort as it relates to a beginner lucid dream and dream yoga practitioner? Is there a path of progression we follow just to get to a point of being able to have consistent lucid dreams? Yes, for sure. You know, and that's the key, right? Or I should say that's the, the, the challenge is to have these types of um, occurrences, these types of lucid practices, these dreams with some constancy. That's why this is a curriculum. That's why I talk about it as night school. It, it takes a while to develop that facility. And the joyful effort part, the beginning of the question, I think that's a really beautiful way to talk about it. Joyful effort, not too tight, not too loose. The effort, that has to be there, otherwise you're not practicing. The joyful part means you're engaged, but not like too fanatical about it, because if you try too hard, the mind, it's like having a saddle that's not too tight, the mind will buck and kick and try to get it off. So as the Dalai Lama says, I have little plaques around my house, you know, very famously he says, um, never give up, never give up. Whatever is of value um, takes some time. And so joyful effort is key. If we continue to apply our skill sets using all the methods that I'm riffing on, all the stuff that's in the literature, eventually through simple cause and effect, through simple habit, through simple karma, you definitely will start to have these dreams with increased regularity. There is a little bit of magic involved in lucidity. Um, sometimes I actually talk about magic induction techniques like devotion and compassion, things like that. But a large part of it is just pure causality, pure mechanics. And so if you work to become lucid, i.e. aware, lucidity is a code word for awareness, you become more lucid to your mind with your daytime practices, you augment that with your practice of awareness lucidity at night. It's just, it's just simply a matter of time before you will start to have more and more and more of these dreams. Um, dream yoga, remember, the moniker for dream yoga is the measure of the path. And this is one reason it's considered a slightly advanced practice, because some people may not want to be so measured. Even in the psychological arena, right, dreams are truth tellers, because they're usually unmediated by the executive function, the parental function of the brain, especially the frontal and prefrontal cortex. And so that's why you can learn a great deal about yourself psychologically and spiritually by how things manifest in your dreams. You may think you may have a rocking solid deep understanding of the teachings on emptiness, for example, and then you go into your dream world and you try to manipulate, you know, some of your dream objects um, and you realize you just can't do it. It's because, you know, the, the full incorporation of the teachings on emptiness have not been, in fact, fully incorporated. But you will start to see progress along these lines. And so let me just share an example. You know, I've been doing this for decades. 
And when I first started doing one of the more entry-level practices, which is uh, coming up against a wall or a table or an object, doesn't matter, trying to walk through it in the dream, trying to put your hand through it. So really, it's like, uh, if you saw, remember that really quirky movie, Men Who Stare at Goats? Remember that with uh, George Clooney? Remember the guy that CIA operative is staring at the wall, remember? And then he jumped, I won't tell you, but remember then he leaps at that wall? So that's actually a dream yoga practice, believe it or not. And so when I started doing it, man, there's just no way. I was just like the guy in the movie. I'd, I'd hit the wall and just fall back. <laughs> it's one reason my nose is so blunted. You know, I blunted my, well, it should be blunted actually. Um, so, but after studying emptiness for decades, doing this practice, I can now come up to a dream wall and it's still, there's a still a little bit of resistance. There's still the habit of reifying the wall, but now I can walk through it um, 10 times faster than I was able to decades ago. So constancy, inspiration, learning about the benefits, learning about why it's so fruitful to do this, continuing your daytime practices, simply persevering. And then it's really, it's just a matter of time before these things happen with more regularity. One of the things that makes advanced practitioners both advanced and advanced is they literally simply never give up. You just keep going. And something's happening whether you know it or not. I mean, this is the, also important to understand you may not have immediate overt transformations. It's a little bit, the analogy I use is, you know, this big vat of cold water. That vat of cold water represents your bad habits. And depending on how big the, the, the vat is, how cold the water is, and how much heat you have on, it's gonna take, it's gonna take a few minutes to undergo a phase transformation from water to boil to steam. But whether you know it or not, you're putting energy into it, it's heating up. Uh, the alia, technically speaking, the alia vijnana is being transformed. It's just happening below the radar. So that's also really helpful to know that things are happening whether you know it or not. Um, and just understanding that will allow you to keep the heat on. And then eventually you'll, you'll come to a boil. It's just the nature of simple causality. So. Could you speak to the slogans, rest in the alia and be a child of illusion from the perspective of dream yoga? <laughs> yeah, well, these are the daytime practices, right? So these are the absolute bodhicitta slogans in the, the uh, vast array of the absolute and relative slogans. So be a child of illusion, you know, that's the post-meditation practice. That's the practice of illusory form. That is the main, kind of date in addition to standard meditation, which is the practice of lucidity. The practice of illusory form is the main practice for dream yoga. In fact, in many texts, classic texts, um, illusory form being a child of illusion, and this of course is what? This is just basically applied emptiness fundamentally. That's the main practice. Dream yoga is a subset of illusory form. And so this is, this is a marvelous post-meditation practice. It's such a big deal that, you know, the book I'm releasing this summer, the whole book is about this, Dreams of Light, the Profound Daytime Practice of Lucid Dreaming. It is about just these topics. Um, and so, you know, rest in the, in the alia, yeah, I mean, that, that again is another more absolute level practice where at this point, and this is a little bit technical, but um, when, when the Vijadara, pretty sure this is Trungpa Rinpoche's translation. When he uses the term alia, which means range, as in Himalaya, basically alludes to the idea of range of wisdom. 
in his terminology, the alia basically refers to alia jnana or the actual nature of mind. This is different from, again, a little technical, this is different from alia vijnana, which is eighth consciousness. Most of the time, that's where we fall when we go unconscious in the dream state. So rest in alia is, is basically a, a way to continue to remind yourself to open and to, and to rest, even if you're faking it at first, just simply opening and allowing yourself to rest in the foundational nature of mind itself. So that's a, a, a pretty deep dive. Um, maybe I'll leave that for now, unless there's a specific follow-up to it. And at this point, Andy, if we're okay, unless there's another short one, I, I'd like to open it up to our peeps. So yeah, up to you. Okay, yeah, let's open, it, let's, let's open it up to people. And I will, again, these questions, they're rolled. So Andy draws a line. And then next week we'll come back in and, and we'll take some more written ones. But at this point, I'd like to open it up to people who are here. Okay. Well, first and anybody, is, but anybody, but Joseph parent, I don't want to hear from my golf instructor today. Cause otherwise I'm going to start crying. <laughs> um, first up is Myra. And... Oh, Myra. I'll always talk to Myra. She makes me smile. She makes me laugh. Okay. And, and you have the audio. <laughs> Feliz cumpleaños. Oh, can, can I, I, <laughs> so nice to hear your voice on my special day. Oh, I'm so thrilled that you are sharing this day with us. We're yeah. very oh, wait, wait, before I forget, I have to share this. If my friend Joseph Parrott is listening, Joe, I played nine holes this morning. I killed it, my friend. I think I shot like, <laughs> I, I shot like five over. That's on nine, but that's okay. That's pretty good for me. Not bad. So anyway, that's I, quite a... I, yeah, I had, to, I had to send that off to my friend. I started my day in a bang, <laughs> shooting five over. And hopefully, you know, um, it'll be a, an omen for this entire good year. I'll shoot under par. I'll live under par for the upcoming year. So anyway, nice to see you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, two things. Uh, first, I'm still trying uh, to figure out if I'm going to take your um, workshop this weekend. Um, one of the reasons is because I do not know whether I can follow. Um, I don't have the weekend to follow online, but can I, is it okay? to do it on my own later would that affect absolutely it's all recorded yeah and thank you myra for in fact i totally forgot about that dear so give me just 10 seconds to share this with people sure. this evening uh, a free totally free 7 30 eastern standard time uh, bob thurman and i uh, were launching a, a six-day program friday saturday sunday starting tomorrow and then next friday saturday and sunday uh, it was originally going to be a one-week program but obviously that ain't happening and so this evening is a way to launch it. Bob and I are doing it completely free. You just have to go to the menla.org on the online site. You do have to register for it. They'll send you a link and you can join Bob and I. We're going to do a, a two hour kind of back and forth ping pong match um, about the Bardos. And if, you, if, if listeners are not familiar with Bob Thurman, this guy's unbelievable. He's, there's no one quite like Bob Thurman. I, I refer to him as a hoot with a heart. He's amazing. And so I'm super excited about it. Thanks for reminding me. Otherwise, I would have totally forgot. But you, I am here for you. Yeah, I appreciate <laughs> it. We're recording it. Um, and if, if people can't attend the whole thing, they can, they can download it and listen to it at their leisure. So Okay. The and, second thing is that, um, in especially one of your quotes lately on Twitter regarding Dalai Lama and dream yoga being the practice of emptiness. Yes. Um, and, um, but I had a dream where um, it was, and it was lucid, where it, a very high teacher gave me a mala. And I, when I received the mala, I prostrated three times. 
And I was so lucky that this teacher would give me that. And all of a sudden, I still tear up. I cannot even talk yeah. about it. Beautiful. And everything ran through my body. And I had a sensation of um, like a sleep yoga kind of complete. Well, I don't want to go into the detail. But anyway, the energy lasted almost three hours after I woke up. <laughs> and I said, okay, it's emptiness. It's coming for me. I know where it's coming from. How do I carry? How do I practice in a way to honor the experience without adding any other concept into it? Yep. And that's why I didn't even want to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, but can you carry that thought of how did you not damage or stain the experience? Yeah. That, what a beautiful, beautiful question, Myron. What a beautiful experience. Thank you for sharing it. Um, Yes, this is a great one. You know, so several things. One is the best way to have the experience is to let it go. Um, if you actually look back, usually when we have so-called spiritual type of experiences, and this is worth looking into when we do have them, you will almost always find that they are somewhat defined by a, a degree of openness. They actually are, they're actually a natural consequence of opening. And so, um, unfortunately, what tends to happen, because we're all egoic beings, and we like to feel we're special, and again, I'm not, this is just what everybody does, and I know you, I know you're not this way, <laughs> but we, we tend to um, appropriate those experiences, inflate them, inflate ourselves, and these types of things can be so profoundly deleterious that, that Taisito Rinpoche says these are the most dangerous of all spiritual traps. So number one tip is you reinstate the conditions that brought about the experience in the first place, which is one of complete openness. You just let it go. However, letting it go doesn't mean you don't kill the transmission quality. You know, you had this amazing opening, energy was released, your subtle body was transformed. It, it, I mean, these sorts of things, Myra, eventually, you know, they're not just gonna last three hours they're going to last the entire day and eventually they're going to last your entire life. This is just a glimpse of that. So then what you can do is you use that as a pointing out transmission. You use it as, and I say this in the most cautious ways, a kind of marker in terms of like what's possible. It's like something has been transmitted to you. Something some, through that process of relaxation, there was an a, awakening, a metanoia that was transmitted to you. You can use that as a source of inspiration. Um, and this is where it becomes very delicate and you have to find your own way. Where there's something like, you know, you know within your bones that there's something really real here, quote unquote. And there's part of you that says, I want that. That's quite okay. That's make that an aspiration, don't make it a grasping desire. See the difference? Yes. So you, you make the aspiration May I, may I open to that degree? May, may I find my way back home? You know, the, a few little kernels have been dropped. May I find my way back home? Use that to inspire you. Um, but the near enemy of that, of course, the near enemy of aspiration is grasping. And, and that's where we just have to just be honest with ourselves and say, you know, that was really pretty awesome. Whatever that was, I want more of it. I make the aspiration to have more of that but you don't do it with the stickiness that usually comes with these things um, because that's where they become problematic. That's where you replace a chain made of lead with a chain made of gold. You're still chained. Now you're just chained to delicious spiritual experiences. 
Um, and right. so some, something like that. It makes a lot of sense. Your end, or does that make sense? Well, yeah, yeah. because I, I, mean, it's I fantastic. struggle. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I struggle with the, the fact of also doing the opposite. Like, okay, I'm not going to attach. I'm not going to attach instead of honoring. So the balance of honoring and recognizing the experience yes. without making it a concept yes. is such a tightrope. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real tightrope. And, and it's actually, it, it's in the more advanced levels of the path, these are very serious traps because they, because they just so, they feel so good. And there we have to remember, you know, one of my favorite little riffs on this is that the path is not necessarily about feeling good. The path is about getting real. Because if you think it's only about feeling good, well, what happens when you don't feel good? Is that right. anti-spiritual? Is that somehow not spiritual? No, it's still spiritual. It's all spiritual. It's just that some things seem to be a little bit more spiritual or open than others. And so what you're saying is just spot on. And, and I remember, I, I've asked a lot of teachers these sorts of questions. And, and I remember one Lama telling me, he was really great. He said, you know, you can pat yourself on the back. Let's let, pat yourself on the back three times, you know? Like, <laughs> ah, good for me, good for you, you know? Pat yourself three times and then just let it go. But then okay. you'll always know it's there, it's perfuming somehow. It's perfuming your mind, it's perfuming your experience. It's pointing out, that's why we call it pointing out transmission. It's pointing out a particular quality. It's an indicator that you're absolutely positively doing the right thing. But then in, in exactly the way, as long, Myra, as you keep asking these sorts of questions, you'll never have a problem. It's when you, it's when you stop asking these questions, then you're gonna have a problem. Because Thank then, you. then you get elitist, you get whatever, um, and, and you know, you know. So yeah, something Thank like that. You. Yeah. Well, happy. Yeah. Bye bye. Thank you. Um, Joseph wrote in and he said he had to give a quick response. So, <laughs> so he's got the audio. Okay. Hi there. Oh, I love the backdrop. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Happy birthday. There's Andrew. Sedona. There I am playing with, my, with this genius golf structure who took me from a 50 uh, to a 49 handicap. Now, come on, realistically, <laughs> I think you're an 18, aren't you? I'm about a bogey golfer, yeah. That's yeah, that's 18. I, honestly. So, so, so here's the, I want to congratulate you. If you shot only five over for nine holes, technically you shot four under. So you can say, I shot four oh, under par for those nine holes. Oh, I like that. I like the that, reframing. I thought that would make you happier. I love that. I love that. You have your, remember, you have your own personal par. <laughs> so five over the pro par is actually for under your par. So I love that. I love, I love the rationalization. Congratu congratulations on shooting four under par on your Thank birthday. You. I appreciate that. Those who are watching, this is the most beautiful golf course in, in uh, Sedona where we do there our dream go. yoga. We do our dream yoga program just down the road. Myra's been there, Joseph's been there. Right this there. is the beautiful Seven Canyons thing that, that we played with Joseph a couple of times. It's jaw-droppingly beautiful. But next time before you take the picture, let me know so I can breathe in because my gut's hanging out there a little bit, bud. I, I think I haven't, hang on a second. I got a better one for you, just, just one second. Thanks for your indulgence, everybody. Joe's- uh, yes, We have just one more here, there, there he is. Oh, there that's much better. Oh yeah, yeah. new Isn't shirt. More energetic. Yeah, lost some weight, looking good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye everybody. Thank you, Joseph.
All right. And next up is Patricia. And you have Hello. the idea. Hi, Patricia. Hiya. Happy birthday. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing it with me. I'm having a good one so far. And just to say thanks for all your teachings and thanks to Andy Kay as well for being such a good administrator. He's the best, isn't he? He's the he best. is. He's really great. So thank you, Tibor. So my question is, um, so I'm having experience at the moment when I sleep where I am aware of what's going on around me. So if, if it's the dawn's coming or if the birds are singing, I'm also at the same time aware of my dreams. Like I'm witnessing the dreams. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not, I'm not really doing anything. I'm not taking control of them in any way. But you know that you're dreaming. Well, yeah, because I'm commenting on both the things. I'm commenting on what's going on around me and I'm commenting on my, on my dreams. So what's, what's, like, what's going on there? Yes, you're, you're in a liminal state. Um, you're, you're kind of not quite here, not quite there. I, I actually like the term bardo dreaming. You're, you're in this kind of transitional dimension. What, I talked to Pema Chodron about this when I interviewed her. She had this beautiful phrase where she talked about this as kind of the plasma of the mind, where you're, you're kind of um, uh, dakimi-like, you're dancing between the spaces of these two dimensions of consciousness. And it's, it's fantastic kind of um, corollary or collateral benefit to this type of practice. You know, that you're, again, your mind is just, it's fluid enough, it's open enough, it's dancing between these two different dimensions. And if you can maintain a level of awareness or lucidity between those two, I mean, that's just fantastic because then this can bring about um, awake initiated lucid dreams. So for instance, if you actually find yourself, you know, you're, you're, let's say your mind is flickering back and you're more in the so-called waking state, you're hearing a bird or whatever, what you can do, um, and you may want to look at Stephen LaBerge's quite nice writing on this in his book, Lucid Dreaming and Exploring the World of Lucid Dreaming, where he talks about wake initiated lucid dream, wild, nice acronym, where um, you can take, you know, let me backpedal just a second. When you're having a lucid dream, you can initiate lucidity in one of two ways. The more standard way is what's called a dream initiated lucid dream or a dialed, D-I-L-D, where something in the dream, usually a dream sign or something will clue you in to the fact that like, oh my gosh, I must be dreaming and you attain lucidity. You bring, you actually attain lucidity within the dream. The other type is what you're alluding to. That's a wake initiated lucid dream where in this case, you actually bring awareness with you. You actually take it with you from the waking state into the dreaming state. And so um, by so doing, you'll be able to actually transition your consciousness into the lucid, into the dream state and then actually maintain full-blown lucidity within it. So it won't, you won't be dancing back and forth so much anymore. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. You'll actually be able to land in the dream with lucidity and then do whatever your lucid dreaming or dream yoga practice is. And then let's say, for instance, it ends, you know, then you come back out, that's hypnopompic spaces. You know, um, you're coming back out into waking consciousness. Then you can take the insights from the dream and bring them back into the waking state, see? And so you develop what I playfully now refer to as this kind of um, commerce of the mind, this interstate commerce, literally between two states of consciousness. 
where you're actually ferrying lucidity, awareness, and insights back and forth between these two different states. And so it's really a fun, cool thing to do. This is, by the way, the sort of thing that I do every single night. I may not have a lucid dream every single night, but this is the type of practice I literally do every single night, is I'm falling into sleep, hypnagogic, liminal, coming out, hypnopompic, liminal. I work with this type of interstate commerce of the mind. Something like that, does that make sense? Yeah, thanks, thanks very much. Can you hear me? Yeah, totally. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Uh, so um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, but um, it also, it doesn't just, because liminal is, uh, that's on the periphery of sleep, right? Either when you're going into it or coming out of it. So if, if it's happening to me in the middle of in, in the middle of the night, is it still liminal? It's still liminal, yes, because it's you're not, it's liminal means literally threshold. You're on a threshold of consciousness. You're, you know, you're, you're kind of pinging back and forth between these two states. So it doesn't matter whether it happens in the, in the middle of the night, the beginning or whatever, it doesn't matter. You're, yeah. you're, you're kind of in this, you know, wonderful, playful plasma quality of mind that mm -hmm. I personally find super interesting. And another, if you want just another reference, Evan Thompson in his really elegant book, Waking Dreaming Being, he, the entire riff on this book, which is the dazzling book, is in fact how levels of, of identity, self-consciousness, actually transition as we transition through all these states. So uh, if you wanna learn more about that, in addition to Jennifer Dumper's book, Liminal Dreaming, read Evan Thompson, Waking Dreaming Being, Self and Consciousness in Neuroscience Meditation and Philosophy. He's got some really elegant things to say about these kind of transitional spaces. And, and the reason it's, it's helpful to do this sort of thing is that it will then inform you in terms of what's going on because usually when we're involved in these types of spaces and states, it's just inarticulate, kind of foggy, kind of there's no guidepost. I mean, it's, it may be interesting, but you like, you don't really know what's going on. Well, once you become a little bit more equipped with these subtle nuance transitional spaces, you can start to recognize these when you're going through them and saying, oh, that's what that is. Oh my gosh, that's what that is. And it just helps augment and support your understanding and therefore your, your um, playfulness in this whole enterprise. So it's cool stuff, mm. really cool stuff. Mm. So That's great, thanks very much, thank you. Welcome, thanks for joining us. And next up is Rana. And you have the audio. Thank you. Hello, um, oh, what a beautiful shrine room. There's Pema, I love, <laughs> love snooping at everybody here. Wow, you have a good eyes. That, is that the Vijadra off to the left? Or yeah. I can't really tell. Oh, what a, how beautiful. Yes, cool. Thank you. Thank you for noticing. Um, <clears throat> I wonder what is about this time that we are living right now that uh, it's very heightened this feeling of we are in a dream. You know, it's like it gets so strong that, uh, you know, <laughs> sometimes the, the line between in a dream and in this reality, it gets really blurry. And I, I just know that there is something about this situation with um, virus that it's heightened this dreamlike 
it's it's very strong i don't know what is that my question yeah. is what is about this time yeah that's beautiful it's because we're in a bardo um you know the term bardo i'm sure you do yes. um, the rug of conventional reality has been pulled out and whenever that happens we're sent flying our reference points are removed um, qualities of certainty certitude predictability are pulled out you're in this kind of groundless space that is resonant with what we know as our dreams and so what really becomes quite good or healthy here is that this is actually a pointer of the way reality is reality you know when the buddha i, I riff on this with some regularity you know the buddha is the awakened one what did he wake up from what did he wake up to he woke up from the nightmare of materialism the nightmare of reification the nightmare of solidity that's what he woke up from what did he wake up to the empty dreamlike nature of reality and it's a perfect kicker right mm. he woke up from what we know as reality into what we would call a dream so what does that mean it means that the nature of reality is in fact what we call dream and so when we have these types of bardo experiences bardo and dreams are very 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 similar it's really you're you're you're, you're making contact with the the nature of reality and for some people it can be somewhat unsettling because those reference points are how they define themselves and when those hitching points and references are, are pulled away the dream this type of dream that's pointed out isn't dreamlike for them it's nightmarish it's like panic ridden fear all my reference points are gone all my certitude is gone and for a lot of people that's not very pleasant for practitioners who are a little bit more perhaps adept comfortable with these groundless dimensions this is another pointing out transmission i mean this is this is a dimension of experience that's really being pointed out when all these um, ground structures are being pulled out from under our feet and then so what we do then is is you know this language you then you become a chondro a dakini a sky dancer a dream dancer you play in this and you may notice little fleeting moments of panic little fleeting fleeting moments of uncertainty like you know notice that that's just ego grasping that's just ego trying to reinstate its sense of ground and then see if you can actually release that and see if you can just kind of dance in this free-flowing space celebrate it instead of panicking that's the delicate dance because when when the world out there becomes dreamlike by implication what happens to here this also becomes a little bit more dreamlike in other words as that becomes less solid this becomes less solid and for a lot of people that is not a comfortable feeling you know that is not a comfortable feeling for us it's like hey wow awesome i'm going to play in the space i'm going to be a dakini and play in the space and so that to me for practitioners that's the great gift of what's taking place here is is this, you know this kind of um rug being completely pulled out and the opportunity to really just kind of dance in space and so the question is can we do it thank with you just want to share a little experience perhaps that was lucid dreaming i'm not sure but i had a dream and in my dream i had a thought that wow you are dreaming maybe you're dead 
And as soon as I heard this, I woke up completely, you know, it was like, <laughs> I don't know if I could continue in the dream, what would have happened, but oh, just, next time oh. you, next time just go for it. Oh, totally. And so when you woke up, was, were you a little, was your heart beating? Were you a little unsettled or was it more interesting or was it a little bit frightening? Unsettled, frightening. Yeah, fantastic, beautiful. So that's really good news. So remember what the guy over there said, right? The guy on the wall, what did he say? Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. So the next time, sounds good on paper, right? Doesn't <laughs> sound so good in experience. So the next time this happens, first of all, realize Emptiness cannot harm emptiness. You're already dead. You just don't know it. Yeah. And so when you have that experience next time, be a warrior. Go for it. Go for it. You may find that there's something really interesting if you just surrender to that, die to that, and then uh, let us know what happens. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. Welcome. And Next up is Glenn, and you have the audio, Glenn. Oh. You will have the audio, just one second. Okay. Wow. Happy continuation day, Andrew. Welcome. I still love the Aurora Borealis, still flipping around back there. Oh, it's still there, but behind it are the books still. <laughs> love it. Um, I'm wondering if you can comment on the following. I asked uh, one of my meditation instructors, Tim Olmstead, who you're good friends. Oh, I love Tim. He's one of my best friends. Love yeah, him. Tim, Tim is amazing. And so I asked him this question. I said, um, so uh, I am learning when in liminal dreaming to uh, be lucid and move around. Uh, and then I find sometimes when I'm in open awareness, daytime meditation that I will have very similar types of things. Mm -hmm. Tim's response was, this is called dullness. You need to move your eyes straight ahead and be more energized. So, so I'm wondering, it's saying to me that practices in daytime meditation are different than practices in evening meditation. I don't know if I've got that right, but that's what I thought of it. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Again, Tim is fantastic. So I'm, I'm not going to do anything to contradict his wisdom. He's a very gifted um, instructor. And so here's what I might recommend is I might recommend you, you know, follow his instruction and just see how it alters your experience, how it rests, rests with you. And, and then um, I guess, let me ask you this question. Is there a problem with that? In the, in the experience that you share, is there anything that seems problematic? Well, I think it opened up something to me because in the last uh, two months of doing uh, liminal dreaming of occasional lucid dreaming things of flying and things like that, maybe about once a week, I've found that my daytime meditation is getting changed from at first it was really sparked up but then it became very dull and i think i was tending to push it towards the time i was going to sleep so it was getting very kind of messy and i was saying yeah. boy what's happening so yeah. um yes yeah, so exactly and so what you can do here, that's actually an interesting point so what you what you might want to play with is you know different meditations are designed to cultivate 
and work with different states of mind. And the mind itself obviously manifests differently throughout the day, you know, going to sleep, sleep and the like. And so the great gift of, of this tradition, the Buddhist tradition, especially Tibetan Buddhism, is this vast array of skillful means. <clears throat> and so if you're finding, for instance, that you're doing something like open awareness, and if I'm understanding you right, um, hopefully this is of some benefit, and if not, redirect me. If you're doing open awareness before you're going to sleep <clears throat> and you're finding it's, it's kind of um, you know, putting you in these different spaces, then you may, uh, first of all, notice that and say, well, that's really interesting instead of being like judgmental or, or whatnot, it's always incredibly helpful to just be really curious. Like, well, that's really interesting. And then, and again, don't should on yourself, right? I always say that. It's like, oh, I should be doing this. I should be doing that. But you may find that before you go to sleep, and this is what I find, that I, I find open awareness practice before I go to sleep. I kind of tend to do the same thing. My mind just tends to get a little fogged out. And so this is where Tim's advice sounds spot on where you're just falling into a, a type of dullness or even stupid shamatha, you know, where you're, you're just kind of fogging out because the near enemy of spaciousness and openness is spaciness. And so I find that when that happens, you know, physiologically, I'm getting whatever, that open awareness may not be the most perhaps judicious practice to do at that time then I might um, elect to do something with a little bit more form. Or again, there's so many different varieties here, but, but the great gift of what we've been given is that it, you know, these practices are not one size fits all. We don't apply them under the same circumstances all the time. And the great gift that we've been given is we have all these tools in our toolkit. And if you find that one isn't working, especially when you really expand your horizon with liminal dreaming and the nocturnal practices, then you can just completely shift and say, okay, I'm not going to do open awareness anymore. I'm going to shift into a more of a liminal dreaming practice. And, and then, you know, kind of open within that rubric and see how that perhaps just changes the texture of your experience. And so I, I think the, the take home thing here, Glenn, for me is that start to trust yourself. And as Mipa Mamache says, at a certain point, we all become our own meditation instructors. We, we start to see how our mind works and we start to realize, you know, the, the extremes of laxity, laxity and excitation. Very important to understand those, otherwise we can tip into one extreme or the other. But we also then have the opportunity to use different skillful means depending on how our mind is manifesting in different occasions. I think that's the great brilliance of what we've been given here. The near enemy of this, of course, is you can start shopping between all these techniques. That's the near enemy. Yeah, because you know you stay with it and you go, oh crap, this isn't working. I think I'm going to shift to this. Well, that could just be subtle spiritual discursiveness, right? So that's the near enemy of this, where it's like, ah, oh, I'm not going to do this. I'm just going to do that. Ah, oh, that's not working. I'm just going to do that. This is where you just have to play with this stuff. Talk to Tim. Talk to somebody else, and then eventually you will find the sweet spots of your mind and the practices that are correlative to those sweet spots. And that's where the stuff really gets cool because then no matter what the circumstance, it doesn't matter. I mean, literally, it doesn't matter. There are some upaya that you can pull out and apply. And that's the great gift. So somewhere in there, we'll find our way. And we're like a little pinball here, you know? We bounce against the extremes. This is Alan Wallace talked about it. We bounce against the extremes. Too much laxity, too much excitation. We come back in, we ping around, we, we stumble and fumble. 
And then, of course, my favorite line from Kempo Rinpoche, I say this a lot these days, erring and erring, I follow the unerring path. <laughs> it's just stunning. Erring and erring, I follow the unerring path. Okay, so continue to err on, and uh, you'll be fine. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, Bye -bye. take care. Hope that's helpful. Next is Diana or Diana. And you have the audio. Thank you, it's Diana. Great. Hi, Diana. Hello, N nice to uh, talk with you, Andrew. This is the yeah. first time. I, um, I'm new to, to you and your work. I just got the Dream Yoga book and I signed up for this weekend uh, sure. workshop. I've been studying dreams um, for, oh, for about 14 years from oh, cool. maybe sort of a basic way of um, observing the dreams and looking at the images and um, looking at the as a subconscious mind speaking with a picture language and totally. then uh, seeking to understand it for self-guidance mostly and sometimes you'd have you know a precognitive dream or a visitation dream or something that might be slightly different and the lucid dreaming was mostly just to to be aware that I was dreaming and we and no further activity um, just to observe that um, so I've been working with dreams and people who dream also, uh, or well, everyone, as I understand it, everybody dreams, but who work with their dreams also. Right. And what I noticed, something's starting to be different. Um, so for instance, with one of my dreams, I'm having a dream. And uh, in the, towards the end of the dream, all of a sudden, it's just like a straight up education. Like this is like the last one was about, you know, look, holding the consciousness of love and that I have to have that consciousness with everyone, no matter what they're doing, that kind of thing. So be like a teaching, straight yeah. up teaching that would start happening with a feeling involved with it, as opposed to just continuation of whatever the dream imagery was. Uh -huh. And when I've been talking with some other people who have been studying dreams the way that I have, the same thing's happening to them. It's like, some of them use the word download, but it's like suddenly it's not really the dream that it was. Suddenly they're getting like straight up um, message. Not, not necessarily that there's anybody in front of them speaking to them, but there's like a knowingness of what to do. And you wake up with, this is what's important. This is what I need to do. Sure. I'm wondering if this is just um, because of, of uh, the thinning of the veil, if that's, I don't know, when you said we're in a bardo, I don't know if that's what you're talking about, or if that's just an, a regular thing that's always been happening. A little bit of both. Um, I, I think it, it is a so-called regular thing that simply goes unnoticed, unrecognized. Um, but I think the most important thing is what you were just talking about, is that indeed, when we start to engage in these types of practices, whether they're diurnal daily or nocturnal nightly, we're fundamentally become increasingly transparent to ourselves. That's what's fundamentally happening. The, the membrane between conscious and unconscious becomes increasingly porous, permeable, eventually dissolves. At a certain point, truly, literally, the unconscious mind itself is completely empty. There is no such thing as unconscious mind. And that's a, a really interesting to talk a little bit about that and how that comes about. But for our purposes, what you're saying is really beautiful. And it's certainly my experience is that the more we do this, it's like you say, the veils are getting thinner. 
Um, and literally in the Buddhism tradition, they're, they're called the two veils, Klesha Varana and Janeya Varana, the two veils of conflicting emotions and the veils of, of, of obscurative knowledge that eventually the light, you know, this light is always shining. In Shambhala language, it's the light of the great Eastern sun, the luminous, whatever you want to call it. That light is always shining. And as we start to increase this kind of porosity, permeability, um, transparency to our own selves, this light just naturally starts to illuminate more and more. And then, and then carried along with that light is these illuminating insights. Are these illuminating insights? And it, it's fantastically beautiful, you know? And it's also somewhat interesting, if, if I'm understanding you, that, you know, perhaps originally it's coming in somewhat imagistically, it's still coming in kind of conveyed through the medium of form, but eventually you realize that even that is a heuristic, even that is a training wheel. Eventually that falls away and then the light comes through in a more formalist way as this ineffable and extremely powerful intuitive kind of transmission where it's not even conceptual, it's not even verbal, it's not even imagistic. It's just a transmission of this light of mind. That's awesome. And then you may notice when that happens, there'll be a few moments of course where you grasp it and then, of course, you know, because it's somewhat obligatory, it, it will transmit into that medium of transmission. It'll kind of translate into that. But the most important thing is, is, in fact, when we engage in these types of practices, we're becoming more transparent to ourselves. And this is a natural, really beautiful consequence of that. Um, you, just, you just start to shine more. And then you can start to read, the, you know, that shine of the mind. You know, sometimes uh, preconceptually, it doesn't even come across in not even an artistic way, at its highest levels in conventional arenas, that's transmitted as art, music, poetry, literature. Um, but even purer than that is just the radiance of the light itself. So that's what comes to mind around it. I mean, it, it, it's, it's just really cool stuff. You know, is that light just start, you, you get thinner, the membrane, the veil of ego gets thinner and thinner, thinner, the light just starts to shine. And then you realize that around the luminaries, the real spiritual luminaries, you, you feel it in their luminous presence. Um, they, they're just shining with the radiance of this kind of divinity. And so these are just intimations of those glimpses of that, of that light. Yeah. Thank you very much. That was really helpful. Yeah, very welcome. Nice to meet you, so to speak. See you this weekend. It'll be fun. Put on your, put on your um, saddle because riding Bob Thurman's mind is gonna be a real... <laughs> Amazing. So see you soon. And the next question is coming from Barbara. Hello. Hello. Ah, there I am on. Okay, thank you for I've, I've been kind of in and out of these sessions. And this is the first time I've asked a question. So yes, welcome. Thank you. I'm, uh, I have several questions now, uh, some of them having to do with this weekend's teachings. Okay. I just wondered, I mean, when you were talking about um, no birth, no death, no time, I'm not there. Well, most <laughs> so, people aren't. Yeah, no worries. No worries. And I know Bob Thurman, I've heard him talk and I, I, I enjoy it, but sometimes it's just like, whoosh. yeah. So, um, am I going to be able to work with this and get oh started. totally oh yeah 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 you know uh, uh, i've never danced with bob i mean i've interviewed him i know him i've never actively co-taught with him but 
we have a pretty nice rapport and I think we're going to dance. I'm going to let him lead the dance first just to get a, a, a sense of where he's coming from. But um, don't worry. You're gonna, I'll take good care of you. You'll be fine. <laughs> and do you have any, I think I can only do the one weekend. Do you have any idea what you're more likely to be covering at first rather? Well, I can tell you what I'm covering. I don't know what Bob's covering yet. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to be, uh, and again, I want to say too much here because other people aren't attending, but I'm going to be talking about the incredible importance of the view, relative and absolute view. This weekend, of course, is, is on, um, principally on the painful part of dying. So I'm going to be laying the view, why it's so incredibly important, um, talking about um, the deep practice of, of uh, contemplation, introducing the first steps of meditations that are you know, really designed to help, help us prepare for death, probably talk a little bit about spectrum of identity, um, whether I get to fear this weekend or not, I'm not entirely sure, but fear is a big part of please, what I'm going to do. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely positively as a big part of what I'm going to talk about. And then, you know, eventually start to be very specific about the eight stages of the dissolution process that occurs at the end of life. And then also how it takes place in a, in a kind of concordant fashion every night when we fall asleep. So there will be some correlation between dreaming and, and uh, dying. And then, you know, just like with Bob, I, I dance with the participants. I definitely have a template of ideas, but then I also just want to be um, responding to people and where they are. But something along those lines, you know, these, these particular programs are really, from my perspective, they're really practical. There's a little bit of kind of theory, but it's only theory because we haven't experienced it yet. You know, we're not, I'm not riffing on big philosophical abstruse topics. I'm talking about really gritty preparatory practices and doctrines that support them to help you to die. Um, and so that's a central differentiating factor of these types of programs. They're, they're, I, I, I designed all these. There's, this is the first of four. These are all designed as a bolts-on way to prepare to die. Um, so it's, it's really practical, gritty, you know, kind of um, heading it face on, facing it. Yeah. Okay. Uh um, a very dear friend of mine just died this morning. Oh, so sorry. will you be talking about that at all? Or if not, or even so, could you say, have something, some guidance? Totally. Today. Yes. Uh, you like what to do for your friend or? Yeah. To, well, for, yeah, for my friend, for myself, for the people around him, uh, his yeah that's a big that's a big topic but. it's a big topic yeah and i'm going to say one thing to refer you and then i'll say a little bit more specifically if you don't again sorry for the shameless self-promotion but i talk a lot about this in my book preparing to die i mean that's why i wrote the book but briefly for yourself you know um don't shy away from what you're feeling allow yourself to just be in that blast furnace of of loss and grief um, and just simply sit in that without trying to get rid of it. Just allow yourself to be in that space. And then secondly, for your friend, was this person a practitioner of sorts? Uh, a long time ago, but he'd kind of lost it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the most important thing literally is every time you think of him or her, think of them with love, because if, if they're, um, friends of yours, there is a karmic connection. Very often when they transition, according to these wisdom traditions, they don't know they're dead. Um, they'll be dancing a little bit in this liminal space. 
they'll come back to people like you or to their environments and then they'll kind of transition into the, this dream space that they're in. And so this can be a little bit confusing for them. There'll be moments when they'll recognize they're dead, there'll be a little panic, then they'll forget. And so what you can do for them is every time you think of them, think of them with love. And if this speaks to you, you can actually invite them into your mind space. You can literally, if you do meditation practices, you can, by name, you can call them and you can, you can talk to them. You, you can, um, in, in, in a certain sense, just open your heart to them. That in itself will be enormous because you will therefore come to represent to them one of the principal qualities that they are most looking for and that in fact they have lost, which is some sense of stability and ground. And so your very presence, your love, your good heart and your stable open mind, even if it's a heartbroken mind, don't hide from your pain, will actually create a type of refuge for them that will magnetize them to you. Um, and so you will have a lot more benefit and power than you can even imagine. Um, so it, I would keep it pretty simple along those lines. And then interestingly, if, if you have the option to ask this question to Bob, I would love to hear what Dr. Thurman would have to say about this. But these are the practices that I personally do that are in the tradition that I also work with in myself and then in others. And, and they're, they're very powerful in, in their simplicity and their directness. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I have one last okay. question. Um, over the years, I, for whatever several reasons, I can barely maintain a daily meditation practice. Mm -hmm. And at times feel like I, I appreciated what you said about never giving up and that there's something happening because to me, it often, it doesn't seem like there is, which right. then kind of feeds the circle of then right. not wanting to meditate. Right. Um, so, I mean, is that something to get more strong, to, to get stronger before you attempt dream yoga or? Not necessarily, you know, I, you know, not necessarily anybody can attempt dream yoga at any point. Um, in terms of like, you know, your meditation practices, one thing that may be of some benefit to you, especially if you haven't been joining us is, I will, I will give it to you right now. It's a practice we started doing from the very first session is, is a, a very brief one breath meditation session. You don't have to do, you know, 15, 20 minute, one hour sessions. Obviously terrific if you can, I'm a huge fan of that sort of thing. But there's also tremendous power in short sessions repeated frequently. And so let's do a session right now. And again, I'm not being glib or patronizing here. One breath meditation session comes from the Mahamudra tradition. I do this all the time. In fact, very often when, because I tend to get a little excited and speedy when I'm teaching, I'll pause and we'll do it together. Literally for the duration of one inhalation, one exhalation, you simply bring your awareness to body and breath. So we're gonna do, we're gonna complete our meditation session for today, ready? We'll do it together. That's it. Session's over. You completed your meditation for today. <laughs> and then maybe do it again in an hour. Maybe do it. You're, you're walking your dog. You're going to the grocery store. You're at a stoplight. One breath meditation session. Very powerful. Don't, don't dismiss 
the power of this one breath practice. Okay? Thank you very much. Welcome. See you this weekend. Yes. Okay, we got time for a couple more. I want to stop at 2.30. Great. And uh, next is Katie. Katie, you have the audio. Thank you. Hey, there she is again. Hey, Andrew. Hi, Katie. How are you? Great. How are you? Good. Basically good. <laughs> good. So um, this is actually a follow-up to a previous question I've asked. Okay. So um, the previous question was around when I find myself in a lucid dream and I'm starting to lose form, um, starting to fall apart, as you call it, how, how to go all the way to the formless ground of reality. Um, and you, you told me to try to fall, like do a fall and see, see what happens with that. So uh, a couple of nights ago, I got the opportunity to, to try that. So let me, let me just make sure I'm understanding you. Yes. So you're in a lucid dream. Yes. Right? And so you're having, you're in a lucid dream and there's, there's, you're doing this intentionally or it's just simply happening. The things are starting to become a little bit more formless and, and the content of the dream is actually dissolving, right? Um, well, so in this context of this dream, it actually started kind of as a blank slate. And um, I sort of like moved my awareness into the, texture of the dream like almost like going into the center of an atom or something like that and then i started to fall apart so my my actual physical form started to fall apart. in the dream in the dream okay okay all right so continue i gotcha yes yeah so previously you've told me like you know go do a fall and then that will potentially land you in the formless ground of reality yep. Yep. there's another um, way to do it. yeah good yeah yeah so um I did a fall in this one. And so then I was falling and falling and continuing to fall apart, but it was kind of just this like never ending amorphous falling apart <laughs> formlessness. And um, I'm curious if you have any techniques you could offer for how to like completely fall apart in when I'm in that place. Lose it, yeah, exactly. And so remind me, Katie, um just briefly, what kind of practices do, do, do you do during the day? Are, are you a, a student of Buddhism or what is your kind of spiritual daytime thing? Um, so lately I've been doing like 15 or 20 minutes of meditation and I do sort of like a stepping down practice where I start with awareness of my breath, awareness of form, and then I go into awareness of thoughts and then I go into formless awareness. So it's kind okay. of a and so you do, the, you do this during the day or just before you're going to sleep or is this part of your daily practice kind of thing or? I do this one during the day and then before going to sleep, sometimes I'll do that. Other times I'll do um, just the 21 breaths or mm -hmm. the Lotus practice, the ones from your book. Okay. Uh, game yoga. Yeah. Okay, cool. So a couple of things come to mind. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give you a daytime thing and a nighttime thing. So I'm going to give okay. you two cool. for practice today. So. Yeah. There are several variations of what you can do when, when this is happening in the dream state. One is, and again, I'm not going to say too much. Uh, I'll give you the basic instruction, then I'd rather you just play with it and see what happens because I don't okay. want to, you know, spoiler alert kind of thing. Yeah. Um, what I think you might find very, very interesting, I was, I was quite piqued by when you talked about dream body. There is no dream body. So what you want to do is take your mind's eye in the dream and turn it in so so uh, mm. literally just just like um 
it's it's type of a Mahamudra investigation where that's a technical term where you want to take the lens of your mind's eye and actually turn it in on itself. And you can do this several ways. You can do it somewhat kind of opaquely, amorphously, and just see what happens. Or you can be a little bit more specific and say, I want to see my dream, whatever. Um, I want to see, you know, you can start literally with your dream hand. That's interesting. And then almost literally, as if you're going to turn your dream head and look down, you know? And then the last one, so three phases, you look at your dream ham, you, you turn your dream head down, you try to find your dream body. The most powerful one is you turn your dream mind's eye in and look. And the daytime support to this is in fact, um, you're in meditation, you settle, you do your little routine, whatever it is. And then it's almost my teacher, Kempo Rinpoche talked about it this way. It's almost as if you imagine your, your eyes, so your eyes are out here, now you're in the daytime state, right? You just turn them in. And so you want, you want to look um, directly into your mind. Um, so in order to really substantiate, and it's kind of a paradoxical term, <laughs> in order to substantiate these insubstantial or formless practices, the daytime supports are indispensable. Um, and so sooner or later, through whatever tradition doesn't matter, some facility with the formless meditations is critical because otherwise you're, you're a little bit going to be fumbling around in the dark and there's nothing wrong with that, but you'll have more of a, of an articulated path if you work with this during the day. So turn, turn the lens of the mind back in upon itself and let the mind observe itself. Um, and you know, part of the, the great power of this comes from your own personal exploration. Usually the way these things work, when the, when the traditions like in my three-year retreat or others, when I did with Kempo Rinpoche, they'll literally give you like one line instruction and then they'll send you off and say, come back in a week, come back in the whatever. And so that way, you, you, you know, you're, you're the one that's making the discoveries. You're the one that's stumbling, tripling, and then you come back and you follow your travel log report. And then the teacher says, do this. Another one line or two line, or you go back and try it again. Because if somebody just gives you all the answers, it, it just, that's nothing. Yeah. The idea, the idea, it's like, a, you know, I, I often talk about the Buddha, you know, he's talking about as the, the divine physician. Well, I like to think of him as the divine attorney, where a really skillful attorney will lead the witness, just with the right questions. Questions are more important than answers. And so these types of investigations are questions, where you turn the lens of the mind back in, you just look. And then get back to me and let me know what you find. That's okay. Great. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. You're, you're doing some cool stuff, but the, you know, augment this with a little bit of daytime support. It'll help you tremendously. Okay. Thank you. Cool. See you in the formless realm. Okay. <laughs> one more Andy. And then I got to do something. I don't know what it's my birthday, man. So, <laughs> okay. Great. One more. Um, and next up is Mitch. And Mitch, you have the idea. Okay. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to share a little bit of uh, my experience. Uh, I've actually been practicing uh, Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, for about 35 years. And awesome. I've had uh, spent uh, trying to do uh, a dream yoga for all of those years. And cool. did week long uh, workshops with uh, some Tibetan teachers of mine. And um, never had had much success. I have your book. I've have 
a number of books. Sure. And I just, uh, I think I'm a little too attached to my sleep. And Could be. Yoga definitely uh, messes with my sleep. So. Could be. Uh, and of course, a bit of laziness. But other than that, uh, I keep trying. I haven't given up. I, uh, and um, I'd say about a week ago, I had this experience that um, I became very lucid. And I, but I, I wasn't sure, like a former speaker, if I was dreaming or I was dead. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, it wasn't so cool at the time. But. Exactly, 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 but cool, yeah. Uh, so, um, I know that some of the markers, some of the signs are the same. And uh, I remember one of the state, I remember one of the state checks was that I think, and if you're dead, people aren't paying attention to you. Yeah, see, that doesn't work for me because nobody ever pays attention. To me. <laughs> right. I've I've just messed that one. It's like right. that one doesn't work for me anymore. <laughs> or maybe or maybe I've been dead all these years and just don't know it. That could be it, actually. Well, wow. Yeah. So, sorry. This, this first person uh, did not pay any attention to me, <laughs> and I said to myself, oh, "This doesn't look good." So, uh, and then I remember about, um, I thought I'd go up to that person and if I could go through them, well, maybe that meant I was dead, but if they were solid, maybe that meant I was awake. Although I know that's not, that could be either way, but that's what I did. That's awesome. And I went up to the person and I felt their arm and they were very solid. Yeah. And then immediately things just started speeding up. Yeah. And I woke up. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I was very relieved to still be alive. Yeah, <laughs> that was my experience. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, so where where does it leave you? I, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. There's a question there. I can comment on what you're experiencing, but what retrospectively, where does it leave you? I mean, do you say a little bit more about the kind of the the so-called residue or the um, feeling that you're left with from something like that? Uh, well, one feeling is I was very happy after 35 years to. Yes. The dream. <laughs> yes. So, um, uh, and very happy to um, have a little more acquaintance to a possible Bardo experience. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. That's what. That's where I was going to go with it. Yeah. Because that's what the Bardos are like, my friend. And so here's the other thing to pay really close attention to and work with this. <clears throat> that very sense of. You may have noticed somewhere in there, that in fact, it could have been what popped you out. <clears throat> you may have noticed a sense of contraction because somewhat correlative with the fear, um, maybe panic, almost always there's a little bit of like WTF and just like, wait a second here, right? So a little bit of, of self-consciousness. And this is exactly the type of so-called threat that we will in fact experience in the bardo. I mean, you know, it, as you know, dream yoga in the Tibetan tradition came about principally as a way to prepare for death. They're highly concordant states. And that's why Padmasambhava, I mean, Guru Rinpoche, right? He, he says, you maintain lucidity in the dream state seven times. Archetypal number, don't reify it, just means some level of constancy. You attain lucidity seven times in the dream state, you're going to attain lucidity in the bardos. So what you experienced, it was very much like a bardo experience. And, and this can do several things. One, especially for a practitioner with your um, background, is use it to inspire you to continue to de-reify even more and more and more. So that the next time you have that type of experience, instead of saying something you know, correlative to like, oh shit, 
you can say something like, oh, wow. You know, like, oh, wow, this is awesome. I'm dead. There's no form. I can't find myself, but there's still something. Don't worry about what that thing is. You know what it is. It's just still rigged, but still formless awareness. And every time you contract from that, that's the, the transformation of Rigpa into Sam on the spot. And you will find then that's where the shit show starts because you're trying to, you're trying to understand it, appropriate it. In fact, certain sense relate to it, die to it, just go into it and realize, you know, the only thing you're going to lose is just, you may lose your samsaric mind, you know, emptiness cannot harm emptiness. And so when you have these experiences, these are profound, they're revelatory. I, I've had a number, and they used to scare the bejesus out of me. And then I started really looking. It's like, well, why, why is this so unsettling? What's the fear all about? Well, it's because you're fundamentally discovering who you really are, which is nothing, no thing. But that doesn't mean nothing continues, right? It's just not a thing. And so when you feel that, that is exactly what you're going to feel in the bardo. And if you, we cannot embrace, accept, relax into that, it is exactly that contraction that will hurl you involuntarily, not just waking up into this realm, it's going to throw you back into another body. It is exactly that impetus that will throw you involuntarily into your next form. So celebrate that. I'm, again, it, it easier said than done, right? You know, it's like um, somebody once told me, uh, the great legendary Burmese master Ajahn Chah, when, when students would come to see him and, and want to be accepted, in, his, in monastery, allegedly he would say in these kind of entry interviews, so you've come here to die. So you've come here to die. I mean, the path is just death in slow motion, right? I mean, that's what it is. Literally, death at the end is just wrathful liberation. So, you know, that type of thing, it's again, it's a little bit why um, dreams are the moniker of the path. You know, they, they say, and again, tongue in cheek in the Tibetan tradition, they say, based on my experiences last night, I can infer I'm going to have a hard time in the Bardos tomorrow. <laughs> so take what you experienced and say, hey, you know, let's do this again. And the next time you feel that fear, go into it. Don't contract. This is why it's so important to understand the nature of fear. Because that, that's the fabric affective expression of ignorance. That's what's underlying this whole shit show. And so when you dissolve, guess what's waiting for you? Just that. And that's what you're going to contract away from. And so this is why fear, really, no kidding. I mean, Pema Chodron's made a career out of this. Fear is a really, really good sign on the path. Literally, etymologically, fair. It means the word fair. Fear is the fair, F-A-R-E, the toll booth. That's what you need to pay to actually transcend into these states. So what you experience is fantastic. Next time you go back in there, just go in there and say, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. You know, here's the fear. I'm just going to go right into it. And then send me a postcard. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Mitch. Hey, thanks, everybody. Thanks for spending some time with me on my special day. I really appreciate it. I'm so grooving on these events with you. Hope it's still working with you. Um, join us tonight, you know, uh, Bob Thurman, freebie at Menla. He's, he's terrific. Just come by and, and check us out. It's going to be a total gas. But otherwise, I'll be back next week and we'll continue with something, okay? Bye.